we began last week discussing the topic of racism. I titled the lessons Questions About Racism, which indicated, I hope, that it's not answers about racism. I don't have all the answers. I don't even have some of the answers some days. But I think it's a necessary thing that we talk about, and I explained that last week. Uh, with all of the turmoil that's going on, all that we've seen in the world for the last months, I, I know, I've heard, that there are many of you who don't know what to do, but you want to do something. You, you see all this, and you don't quite know how to react. You don't know if this is right or, or wrong or what. And So I thought, let's talk about this a little bit from a Christian church perspective, and hopefully we can be helpful in some way. Now, let me say before I start that it's especially hard to discuss something like this or even want to discuss something like this in the world today because basically there is no goodwill left in the world and no civility anymore. We used to be able, I think, to discuss about anything and to have some disagreements maybe and say, well, I don't know if this is a way to approach that or not. And we thought, well, even the other person disagrees, at least they've got good intentions. That we're, we're trying to do the right thing. Today, somehow, we have gotten in a situation where it's not that way. Now, if you disagree with someone, you're not just wrong. You're evil. You're morally inferior because of their position. And folks, that makes this hard to talk about one-on-one, -on -one, but especially hard to talk about to a large group. It's easier just to be silent. It's easier just hope it all goes away somehow, I guess especially when a lot of what you get, or sense at least, I get the feeling, that you can't do the right thing. If you're silent, you're part of the problem. If you speak, you get attacked. If you don't ask, well, you don't care. But if you say the wrong thing, that, that's racist. And, and I know others of us of you have that feeling about things. I hope this can be helpful for Northside. Now, I don't Facebook. I, I look at my wife's page fairly regularly, and I learn some things there and, and all that, but also some days my head wants to explode. You know, there's some really ungood things on there. And some of you put some of those ungood things on there. So I don't Facebook regularly, but my wife told me this week that some people that I respect and love had reposted last week's sermon and said some good things about it, and that gratifies me in some sense, but it also bothers me in some sense, because what I'm doing, I don't want to be the brotherhood expert on that. Now, if somebody gets some good out of the things I say, fine. But that's not what I'm here for. I'm here to talk to my family. I'm here to talk to the people at Northside 
the family of God here, and I hope that some of this can be helpful. Uh, last week we asked three questions. Let's go over those real quickly. Questions about racism. Uh, number one, why does racism exist? Well, we said it's the nature of man without God. Racism is included in every other kind of ism and every other kind of hate and every kind of division and every kind of strife. It's the nature of man without God. On top of that, we all have a nurture. We've all been raised different ways where we believe things and act in certain ways that may contribute to the racial problem or other problems. Second question we asked was, what is God's plan for racism? What's God's plan for racism? And the answer probably surprised some of you, but I said, I think the answer is the church. The church is God's answer for racism. In the church, in Christ, we get a new nature. In Christ, we get help in overcoming the nurture that may be the problem. Jesus prayed for perfect unity, and we looked at John 17. He prayed for perfect unity in the church so that the world would believe. I I called it subversive. Instead of attacking the world system and trying to fix racism and all the other isms, he built the church and said, in you, in there, if you are one in me, perfectly united, then the world will see that you're different than the world. In a world of hate and division, the world notices unity and love. That's the plan. And then the third question was, well, how are we doing on God's plan? And my conclusion, at least, was on a global perspective of centuries and centuries, uh, we're doing pretty good. The church has been salt and light. The world is different because of Christian people. Lots of good things have changed for the better because of Christ followers. We can see that things are better. Not perfect, but they've been influenced. Now, that's globally. Locally, how are we doing on God's plan in the church? Well, not so well. We're still divided over lots of things. We're still divided over all kinds of things, and often it's race. And what I said as we quit was, to the degree that we're not one for any reason. Whether it's black, white, or any other difference, to the degree that we're not one, then we're not doing as well as we should. Because God's plan, Jesus' prayer, was for perfect unity. Okay, when we finished that, I said that today, this week, we would ask some questions about how to do better. So that's what we're going to tackle today. Now, let me hit pause here for just a minute before we go on. Another kind of disclaimer here for you. Uh, Talking about hot button issues, when when I do that, I kind of want to know what other people are saying. Now, eventually, I'm going to get to the Bible 
I always go there to get the answer. But I like to know, what are other folks saying about this hot-button issue? So I do a little research. And I've been doing this for a long time, not just the last two months. Uh, Actually, yesterday, I googled sermons about racism. You get 58,600,000 hits. Okay? Now, I didn't cover all of them. I hit a few here and there. I checked out a few preachers that I I know of and respect and have heard good things about and some others that I just wondered what they had to say, and I didn't spend weeks and weeks listening to all of it. But I kind of got the gist. And I just want to confess up front that it kind of fell into two groups for me. One kind of sermon was basically just racism is a sin. And I agree with that. That's what the preacher said. Racism is a sin for this reason, this reason, this reason, this the five points maybe. Okay, and when they were done, I agreed that racism was a sin, but I didn't know what to do about it. So there were quite a few sermons like that. Then there was another group, which to me kind of followed a formula that what we've got to do about this as a church is, well, we'll start with a history lesson about systemic racism and how America is at fault in many ways and how white people are privileged, and we need to understand that. And here's some books that you can read about why you're guilty and what white America has done wrong. And by the way, after you read all that, you really can't understand it. But you need to try to understand it, but you really can't. And if you say something wrong or look the wrong way, that's microaggression. And if you don't understand all this that I'm telling you, well, you're not woke enough. And when I got done with those, I really didn't know what I was supposed to do about the problem. Okay? Now, I'm not denigrating the preacher's work. Every congregation's different. And there may be congregations that need exactly those kind of sermons. Okay? And I'm just mentioning all that because I want to remind you that we're working at Northside here. So I told you some things last week that that's between you and me. You know, I've got ancestors that own slaves. I've got ancestors that killed Catholics. I understand some history, but I wondered why as I looked at those sermons and listened to some of them and watched some of them, why why is this not helping me understand what to do? And I think I found the answer. So here's question number four that we're going to deal with in this series. Why do we seek worldly solutions to this problem?
I listened to lots of sermons and read some and, and perused books and all that, and I saw a whole bunch of worldly solutions. Why do we as the church seek worldly solutions? Okay. Now, I'm not talking about the world. The world's got to have worldly solutions because that's all they got. They don't have any other option. Uh, politics and schools and workplaces and all that, they got to find a worldly solution. So that's what we see right now. We see all kinds of different worldly solutions to fix this problem. We're, we're going to tear down a statue. We're going to change a mascot of a sports team. We're going to ban some flags. We're going to kneel at the national anthem. We're going to wear T-shirts. We're going to paint BLM on the street. We're going we're to do something that solves this problem. And worldly solutions, especially when we react quickly like this, tend to be really symbolic. And when I was a teenager, 1968 Olympics, Mexico City, Tommy Smith and John Carlos ran the 200 meters. Tommy Smith got first, John Carlos got third, got the bronze medal. Both of them were black, by the way. This was in 1968, three years after the Civil Rights Act was passed, when racial tension was high in America. Okay. Tommy Smith and John Carlos got on the stand, and they went shoeless. They wore black socks, but no shoes. And that was to symbolize black poverty. They had black scarves around their neck. That was to symbolize black pride, they said. They wore a necklace of beads that was to symbolize all the people who had been lynched. They wore badges of the Olympic humans, human rights badges. When the Star Spangled Banner started, both men bowed their heads and raised their gloved fists in the black power salute. Iconic picture. Revered as one of the great civil rights moments and symbols of all times. That was 52 years ago. The world loves symbols. Whether it fixes anything or not. But I'm not talking about the world. They need worldly solutions. I'm talking about us, the church. If we want to do better, why do we seek worldly solutions? And I have two sub-questions about this fourth question before we try them in the church. Number one, back up here a minute. Uh, okay, I don't know where that one went. Number one, do they work? Before we try worldly solutions, do they work? Uh, now, I, I, when I was in high school, the Civil Rights Act was passed. And I've seen lots of change. As a reaction to that in the 70s, and I worked in the business world, we've had quotas. Okay? 
we were supposed to have diversity by hiring certain numbers of minorities. Okay? I was a manager, and human uh, resources loved me because I had one employee, a super, uh, supervisor, who was a female. I got a point for that. I had another supervisor who was black. I got a point for that. And he had a Spanish surname, Antonio Ortiz. I got a point for that. Okay? And that helped in a way. It, it forced some people to do something that was uncomfortable for them. I would have hired those two people anyway because they were good supervisors. And I actually took a lot of heat, grief, for hiring them. But I did it anyway. And I'm saying that that passage of that law and our reactions to it have changed things in America. But what I'm asking is the do the things that we sometimes propose as a worldly solution the, the diversity training, the self-awareness help, and all of that, does that help? And I researched it a little bit, and the answer is nobody knows if it helps. We've been doing it for 50 years. But does it change hearts and minds? Nobody knows. I, I read one big study, and I won't bore you with all the details because it was way too long for even me to read close to part of it, but the t- title of it was Prejudice Reduction, What Works? A Review and Assessment of Research and Practice. And they studied all these kinds of training and then tried to find out if it made any difference, if it changed anything, and here's their conclusion. We conclude that the causal effects of prejudice reduction interventions remain unknown. This is after 50 years. We don't know if this helps or not. In fact, they went on to say, one can argue that it's successful because they break down stereotypes and encourage empathy, but you can also argue that they reinforce stereotypes. They don't know if it works. What changes minds and hearts? Even laws and diversity training and all that, that doesn't change minds and hearts. Laws change behavior, and that sometimes begins to let people see something that they couldn't see before, and that's good. 150 years ago, when the Emancipation Proclamation was signed, it didn't change minds and hearts. It caused more problems in many ways. But we worked through that. Or worked through some of it. hundred years ago, women got the right to vote. That wasn't a popular thing a hundred years ago. It was not a majority, but today you'd be hard-pressed to find anybody that mind and heart hasn't changed. So the law does change things. Not overnight, but over time. The Civil Rights Act caused changes. The Voting Rights Act caused changes. I'm not saying that 
those don't do good, but I'm talking the church here. And I'm saying worldly solutions. My question is, did they really change minds and hearts? My second sub-question about this, see if we can find it. There it is. I missed, missed the scripture, evidently. Uh, what was that scripture? It might have been a good one. That is a good one. Colossians. Well, I was asking, well, why do we seek worldly solutions? Here's a scripture that says, Paul said, you've died with Christ, and he set you free from the spiritual powers of this world, so why do you keep on following the rules of the world? Such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. Such rules are mere human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion and self-denial and severe bodily discipline, but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. Now, I realize that's about a, a little different topic, but what Paul's saying there to the Colossians is, why do you seek worldly solutions? They don't work. They don't change minds and hearts. My question, number one, is do they work? Number two, we're back on track here again. Could these worldly solutions make it worse? Well, the study said, yeah. They possibly do make it worse. And my question about this is how can focusing on differences, which is what the world solution is, how can focusing on differences and emphasizing the negative, help. I don't know. I, mean, I don't know the answer to that. I'm asking questions. I wonder how focusing on people's differences and focusing on negative things can possibly help. It, it doesn't work anywhere else in the world, and we don't try it anywhere else in the world. We don't try it with sports teams. We don't try it in schools. We don't try it in businesses. We don't sit people down and say, all right, this group right here, you are privileged and you've got an unfair advantage. And this group right here, the deck is stacked against you. And you're going to have a really hard time making the team because of these people. Do we ever do that in anything else? I don't think we do. What we do is we get people together and we say, we're going to roll the ball out and see who can play. You all got a chance. Okay? We don't start off emphasizing the differences and the negative things. Some of you have coached youth sports. How does a kid do whose parents tell him repeatedly, the deck stacked against you. Coach doesn't like you. You're getting cheated. You ought to be playing more. How's that work in the real world? Does stressing the negative and all the drawbacks really help be one? And I'm talking the world and the church. It's a difference here. Last week, a brother here told me afterwards, he happens to be wrapped in a darker color than I am. He came up and he said, you know that nurture thing you talked about? He said, that's important. 
He said, one time when I was about third grade or so, he said, I came home and told Dad, I said, my teacher's picking on me because I'm black. And my dad said, really? You're telling me she's got 30 kids in there and she's got time to pick on you because you're black? Yeah. He said, well, we'll go talk to her. And if she's really picking on you because you're black, well, we'll straighten it out. But if she's not, you know what's going to happen to you? And he said, I said, well, maybe she's not picking on me because I'm black. Okay. Uh, there's a parent who emphasized not the negative, but the positive. Maybe there's a key there. Uh, I don't know if worldly solution of emphasizing differences works or even makes it worse, but it doesn't matter because I want to talk about spiritual solutions. Let's do that. What is the spiritual solution? In the Bible, how do we do this unity thing? And as I thought about that and wondered where I could read about this, I was amazed at how little I could find how few their details are about how do I do this unity thing. In fact, look at this. Jesus in John thirteen thirty four, he said, A new commandment I give you, love one another. Now, you can read all the context you want. You won't find much more detail. Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, here's the way it works. You love one another. That's the command. That's the way it works. Paul wrote to the Philippians, said in chapter 2 and verses 2 and 3, he said, you be like-minded. You have the same mind. You be one in spirit and purpose. In humility, consider others better than yourselves. But, but, but Paul, how do I do that if we're so different culturally or color or whatever? Paul says, you be like-minded. You be one in spirit and purpose. In humility, consider others better than yourselves. That's the directions. You can't find many details. I thought, you know, there's got to be some how here somewhere. So I, I decided I'd read deeper. I said, I'm going to look through the New Testament for every case of racial division and see what I can find. I found quite a list of interesting things that happened in the church. And we're going to go through these really fast. That's why I put the scripture up there for you. You write those down, take them home with you and read them. It might come in handy later. But as I go through these as fast as I can talk, what I want you to listen for is not the gist of the story. Most of you know the story. What I want you to listen for is some solutions to the problem. Are the solutions worldly or are they spiritual? All right, here we go. Acts chapter 2, the Pentecost. Twelve men, all Galileans. Crowd there of Jews from every nation under, on the earth. 
Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Mesopotamians, Judeans, Cappadocians, Pontius people, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egyptians, Libyans, Romans, Cretans, and Arabs. That is the definition of red and yellow, black and white. That was everybody. Asians, Egyptians, Arabs, Romans, red and yellow, black and white. And what was happened on that day? The Spirit, the Holy Spirit empowered 12 Galileans to go to those people of every ethnicity on the earth and speak to them in their own language. And what did they tell them? Jesus is Lord. That was the message. They spoke in their language. They got it where they could understand it, but the message was Jesus is Lord. Acts chapter 6, ethnic conflict in the church. First instance, Greeks and Hebrews, all of them Jewish, but some of them original Hebrews and some of them Greek lineage. Their widows, the Greek widows, weren't being treated fairly, according to the Greek Christians. So they complained. They went to the apostles and they said, this is not fair. This is unjust. We want equity. We want equality for our widows. The apostles said to the church, you choose seven men of full of the spirit and wisdom. And they can handle it. Find some guys full of the Spirit and wisdom, and they can handle it. Acts chapter 10, the first big cultural conflict in the church, a really big cultural conflict, Jews and Gentiles. Peter was a Jewish supremacist. the way he was raised. That was his nurture. Okay? He believed Jews were superior to Gentiles. Jewish supremacist. He was raised that way. The church was full of systemic Jewishness. All the leaders were Jewish. Okay? Peter is praying. Remember that. Peter's praying, and in during his prayer, Jesus sends down a sheet full of animals, clean and unclean, and he says, hey, Peter, eat. And Peter's response was, no, Lord, I have never, and I won't. Jesus' response was, don't call anything unclean that I've said was clean. And you know what Peter's response was? No, Lord, I have never, and I won't. Three times he did that. He didn't get it. He he couldn't figure it out. And it says after that vision, he was still trying to figure it out. He was still thinking about it. And the Spirit said to him, there's three guys downstairs, and you go with them. Direct order from the Spirit. Peter went downstairs, opened the door. There were three Gentiles standing there.
He invited them in. You know how big a step that was? He invited them in the house. He talked to them. He said, what's the story? They told him all about Cornelius and how Cornelius had a vision and all that. So he went with them. He goes to Cornelius' house, a Gentile. He goes in. What's the first thing he says to Cornelius? Now, you know that this is against our law. You know, I can't be associating with you. But what did you call me for? What's the story? And Cornelius told him the story. He said, I had this vision and all this stuff happened. They told me to send for you and the angel told me this and all that. And Peter said, I now realize how true it is that God doesn't show favoritism. I get it. He accepts men from every nation. He put the vision of the sheep and the animals, and he put Cornelius' story, and he put the being with a Gentile in a Gentile's house, he put it all together, and he said, God accepts all of us. And so what was his response? What did he tell Cornelius next? He preached to Jesus. He said, let me tell you about Jesus. Let's get to be one that way. Told him about Jesus. Chapter 11 is amazing because it repeats the story almost exactly. One of the few times the Bible just tells the same story twice in the same place because it's coming from the flip side. Because when Peter got back, he told the majority of the church about this, and they said, whoa. You ate with Gentiles, we heard. We got a problem with that. And Peter said, let me tell you the story. He explained it to them. He told them about the sheet. He told them about Cornelius. He told them about the angel. He told them all this stuff. And at the end, the majority of Jewish supremacists said, okay, we got no objections. They praised God. They said Gentiles are accepted. Galatians chapter 2, there was ethnic hypocrisy with this Peter that we just thought got it. Well, he didn't quite get it. Not as easy as we think because of our nurture sometimes. Paul tells this story in Galatians chapter 2, and he says Peter was eating with Gentiles. This is later in life. And Peter was fraternizing with the Gentiles and getting along fine. And then some Jews came down from Jerusalem and Peter began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of what those Jews from Jerusalem would say. And Paul said, when Peter came to Antioch, I knew about this, and when he came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was wrong, clearly in the wrong. And others were joining him in that hypocrisy. And I told him, you are not acting in truth with the gospel. Titus chapter 3. Titus was left on Crete, and Paul told him, you take care of things there. Now, Paul said, I know that some people say that Cretans 
people that live on Crete are liars and evil brutes and lazy gluttons. So you remind the church there, you remind them, slander no one, be peaceful and considerate, show true humility to all men. Listen to what Paul says then. Once we were foolish because of our nature and our nurture, we were hated and we hated one another, but God saved us. All of us. And then he went on and said, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, arguments, quarrels. They're unprofitable and useless. Don't fight about all these things. We're, we're all one. God saved us. We used to hate each other, but God saved us. So be one. By the way, while we're on that, James 1.19 says, Be quick to listen and slow to speak. James wrote that way before Facebook. If he wrote it today, he'd wrote it a little different. I think he'd probably say something, be slow to repost. Be slow to speak about things you really don't know what you're talking about. Philemon. Philemon. Whole book, read it. Philemon was a Christian. Philemon owned Onesimus. Onesimus was his slave. Onesimus ran away. We don't know if Onesimus was a Christian at that point for sure or not, but he found Paul. At that point, he was a Christian. He became very close to Paul, very dear to Paul. And Paul wrote this little letter to Philemon, Onesimus' owner, and he said to Philemon, I'm sending him back to you. He's not really any longer a slave. He's more like a brother but I'm sending him back to you as a dear brother. And if he owes anything, charge it to me. I'll pay for it. Send him back to his master. James chapter 2. James tells a story about class prejudice in the Bible, in the church. He said, in the church, you don't show favoritism. If a rich person comes in, you can tell by their clothes they got more money than you. Or if a poor person comes in, you can tell by the way they dress they don't have much money. If you treat them different, then you've insulted the poor person. But even worse than that, you haven't followed the royal law of love of one another. If you follow the royal law of loving one another, then you've done right. But if you show favoritism, you've sinned. Okay, those are the things I found and how they dealt with them. What kind of solutions did you see there? For 2,000 years, the church has been dealing with problems of the flesh. We got problems with racism. We got problems with prejudice, with majority privilege, with discrimination. And sometimes we do better than others. And sometimes we do worse than others, but when we read through those, to me, the solution always seems to be a spiritual solution. 
Jesus gave a very simple command, a new command I give you, love one another. What if we read that and thought, let's just do it? I think somebody already thought of that slogan. But what if we just do it? Instead of seeking worldly solutions, instead of joining in with all of the symbols of the world that make things maybe worse, why don't we just seek a spiritual solution? Jesus must have thought it was possible. He must have thought it was possible. When he picked his 12... He picked some really weird combos. He picked Matthew, who was a tax collector, for the Romans who were the oppressors. They were oppressing the Jewish people. Matthew was a Jew who worked for the oppressors and collected taxes, and everybody hated him. Simon was another one he picked. The Bible calls him Simon the Zealot, and zealots were basically a band of terrorists. Their thing was assassinating Romans or people that supported Rome. That was their thing. And Jesus said, Matthew, you come follow me. Simon the Zealot, you come follow me. Can you imagine how that worked? I got trouble getting my head around how that worked. You know, I I got to imagining that this week. Sometimes I go off on tangents and I got to thinking, I wonder how that did work. You know, what day did Simon come down to breakfast wearing a T-shirt that says, Jewish lives matter? And on the back, no justice, no peace. Because that's what he believed. And did Matthew look at that and say, dude, have you read their website? You know what they really believe? They believe that you ought to kill people like me. And how do you think that t-shirt makes Dr. Luke feel? He's a Greek. I don't know how that worked. I'm thinking that instead of all of that, or if anything close to that happened, that maybe Jesus, instead of saying, all right, guys, we've got to gather up and let's discuss these books I told you to read about how you can offend people in this or that. Maybe Jesus said, Matthew, Simon, you two love one another. Or maybe Matthew and Simon figured it out themselves. Maybe they said, you know, we've had our differences, but we're following Jesus now. And since we're following Jesus now, Jesus said we've got to love each other, Maybe I won't even think about wearing that T-shirt. And maybe I won't be so politically motivated and get all upset when somebody says something I don't like. And maybe we'll just figure out how to love one another. Now, I need your help with an illustration right now. We're going to sing this song, but I'm going to ask you to sing it to each other. And then we'll make an illustration. Stand up. Face each other, center aisle. You guys over here on this half, sing it to those folks. You guys over here, sing it to those folks. I'm not kidding. Stand up. Brent, lead this thing. I love you with the love of the Lord. I love you with the love of the Lord. 
Please love me with the love of the Lord. Please love me with the love of the Lord. If you want to do God's will, then the need you must fulfill is to love me with the love of the Lord. Now you can be seated. All right, here's my illustration. We can sing the words. We sang the words, and I can't tell from you singing the words whether it's heartfelt or if it's just symbolic. I can't tell. Now, if it's heartfelt and you intend to obey Jesus' command, then it will be visible. In a few minutes when we dismiss... It'll be visible all through the week. It'll be visible in how Northside functions together as one. So, last question, and I know we're going over time, but we're going to get there. Last question, what will we do? I don't know why we seek worldly solutions. I think there's a spiritual solution. Now, what are we going to do? God wants unity. Satan wants division. I'm really sure of that. And we got an option which one we're going to pick. Satan's going to have his division in the world. Okay? That's a given. Racism will exist till Jesus comes back. Okay? We're not, we're not going to fix that. But that's not God's plan. The question is, what will the church look like to that world that's filled with hate. Galatians chapter 5, listen to this. Paul says, so I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. We've been talking about worldly solutions. Don't change minds and hearts. What does? Walking by the Spirit. That gives you different desires. It changes your nature. Brothers and sisters, the church is the only group on this earth that can tap into the power of the Holy Spirit. Everybody else has just got worldly solutions to work on. We've got the power of the Holy Spirit. What if, instead of reading books written by folks who tell other folks who the problem is with other folks, what if some church folks just got together and prayed for the Spirit to lead them? Ask for the Spirit to give us wisdom on how to do this. And some of you are thinking in worldly solutions, well, who do we invite to this? You know, what color should we have in this group? I can't tell you that because I'm talking in the church. And in the church, there's neither Jew nor Greek nor neither slave nor free. So I can't tell you, I just said church folk. So you, you invite any kind you want. You think it would be helpful. 
In fact, a pretty good clue is if you'd be uncomfortable with it, maybe you ought to ask them. What if a bunch of church folk just sat down and said, we're going to pray about this. Uh, We're going to tell God that we're confused. We don't even know what to ask for. You know there's a verse about that? The Spirit helps when we don't know what to ask for. What if we sat down and just said, I'm going to tell Jesus I want to love one another, but I'm not sure how. Could you just show me how? Could you have the Spirit lead me that direction? What if we just sat down and said, I'm going to tell the Spirit, Spirit, if I'm part of the problem, if there's a brother or sister who loves me and sees that I'm part of the problem, help them to speak up so I can learn how to be better at being one. How about if we just got a bunch of church folks and sat down and read that list of scriptures that I just went through? Just read those stories and said, what's this tell us about me? What's this tell us about you? Where do I fit in this story? What if we read the story of the Good Samaritan? Because it tells us how to love our neighbor. And we ask each other, which one are you in this story? Do you think maybe a spiritual solution would appear in there somewhere? Jesus prayed for unity so that the world would believe. Brothers and sisters, the world needs our witness right now. The more divided the world gets, the more a unified church will stand out. The more dark that the world gets filled with hate, the brighter a church will shine who loves. The more difference there is. And right now the world's pretty dark. And we can look at the mess in the world and say the world is in a mess and I don't know what I'm going to do. Or we can look at the world and say the world is in a mess and isn't this an opportunity for the church? Isn't this a good time for us to figure out our differences and figure out how to be one and let the world notice us? Over 50 years ago, Martin Luther King gave a famous speech, I have a dream speech. And we can point to progress that we've made on his dream and we can point to things that we're not there yet. 2,000 years ago, Jesus prayed a I have a dream prayer. That prayer is in John 17. He said, my dream is that they would be perfectly one. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, and as you are in me, Father, and I am in you, may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. That was his dream. And we can point to some places we've done pretty well on that, and we can point to places we haven't done so well. Church is not one. I got to running some numbers the other day. Wichita is about a half million people, more or less, let's say. Eighty percent of the Americans claim to be Christians. That would be 400,000 Christians. What if 400,000 Christians were one? I mean, this is mind-blowing, but what if? What do you think the other 100,000 would think? 
Woo! That's something. Okay, well, we can't do that because doctrines mess us up and things. They believe that and they're wrong and they're wrong and they're really wrong. and We, we can't do that 400,000 thing. Well, 45% of America says they're born-again Christians. That'd be 225,000 together. You think that would impress the other half? Yeah. Well, but we can't do that because they don't do this right and they do this wrong. So how about just the restoration movement? I don't know how many there are in Wichita. There's 11,000 in Kansas. Let's guess 4,000, maybe 3,000. What if there was a church of three or 4,000 people in Wichita, a representative of everybody in Wichita, that got along and was one? Wouldn't that be something? But we can't do that because they want theirs this way and we want ours this way, and we can't quite do that. And after I think through all of that, I think, well, maybe, maybe 700, maybe 1,000. That's as close as we can get. And maybe that's our limit. What if it is? Even if it is, think of it this way. Why would we find any other reason not to be one? In the Northside family, if we've already messed up Jesus' dream as bad as we have, why would we mess it up anymore? Why would we figure out, well, we're not going to be one because of this color or that belief or that political stance or this T-shirt or that Facebook post or anything? Wouldn't we be serious about asking the Spirit to help us be more one. I think we would. Last question. What will you do? In all this world's upheaval about race, and all these scriptures that we looked at today about what Jesus wants, maybe somebody in here has been stirred to think, who am I to think I can oppose God? That's what Peter came to. When Peter finally got it, he said, who did I think I was to oppose God? And it may or may not be about race. Maybe it's something else that divides. If it's something else that divides you from somebody here, then you're opposing God. Maybe you've done something that caused division. Maybe you've taken offense at something that somebody said that you thought was divisive. Anything that keeps you walking up to someone at Northside and saying, I love you with the love of the Lord, causes division. And that's sin. If you think you're opposing God, the elders will be at the back. If you're not in the church and need a new nature and it'll help overcoming your nurture, the elders will be in the back. We'd be happy to baptize you into Christ and get you that new nature. Whatever your need this morning, let's stand and sing. Go to the back and see an elder if you need.